Welcome everybody to KickServeRadio.com Tennis on Air with Andy Zoden. Today I am joined by one of the great coaches in American sports history. And that is no exaggeration. This man as the men's tennis coach at Stanford University over a 28-year period. He was there 38 years, but over a 28-year period won 17 national championships coaching men's tennis. He had 50 All-Americans in that period of time. And, of course, I am talking about the legend himself, Hall of Famer, Coach Dick Gould. Coach, such a treat to catch up with you. And congratulations on your most recent induction into the USPTA Hall of Fame. Andy, nice to be with you. Uh, uh, always good to chat and, and appreciate all you're doing for the tennis world. It's absolutely incredible. I really appreciate that. Uh, first of all, I didn't win any of those championships. I had great players, and great players make good coaches. So, so let's get that straight from the start. Uh, but uh, thank you for your uh, comments on the USPTA Hall of Fame. I was very honored to go in there with my good friend and coaching buddy for 20 years, Frank Brennan, our women's coach at Stanford. And, and uh, we were both extremely honored. And there's not, not too many college coaches in there. I think Clarence Mabry and uh, Todd Barton are in there, which is great, as they should be. But uh, the rest are, are down in the trenches, guys, the clubs. And, and uh, I was surprised, frankly, if there's a college coach, but, but very honored. Well, and of course, uh, humble as always, your, your career coach started at Stanford in 1966 with the intention of coming in and winning a national championship at Stanford, which had a few people roll in their eyes until you recruit <laughs> Roscoe Tanner, along comes Sandy Mayer, and uh, by 1973, not only do you win a national championship, but as memory serves, you guys won the team title. You win the singles title, and you guys win the doubles that year. You guys win a clean sweep. Thank you, John Whitlinger. And also accompanied with his doubles partner, Jimmy Delaney, and, and uh, Chico Hagee had a great uh, run in, uh, in that tournament. As well. was actually the next year in that tournament. But uh, Sandy Mayer won the first championship at 73-4. So he did a great job. And uh, kind of Rick Fisher, you probably never heard of, a local kid, got the semifinals, which was a tremendous win. It was back in Princeton on the clay, and, and uh, it, it, it was uh, quite a thing. It, it made a big difference to me and my coaching style, Andy, because – I had been there starting with a year 66, 67, a school year uh, season 67. And, and, you know, before my coach had been there 16 years, basically since World War II, and, and really a great guy. I knew a lot about tennis. It was a different world than how you coach. You just came out and gave kids balls to go hit. I think most guys work that way. And, and uh, he had never had his team out of the top 10, but the division of teams was incredible because you had USC and UCLA at the top, and then Trinity of University of Texas had great teams on occasion. Froiling, Buckles, McKinley, Chuck McKinley were all on the same team as an example. Sure. Uh, they never played the Insplays because Wimbledon started the day after. The Insplays were quite a bit later then, but they had a team certainly at least worthy of challenging USC and UCLA. Uh, then I had all these great ideas that, well, this is easy. I, I do a little more than just provide balls for practice, and I get these guys coached up, and we're going to win this damn thing. Why not? <laughs> and my first year, we finished 16th in the country, the first year we've been out of the top 10 since World War II, since we started keeping scores. Uh, my next year, we were 33rd in the country. I didn't know how many teams played tennis, for crying out loud. <laughs> my third year, we were 9 and 12, but uh, freshmen were eligible by NCAA rule but not by our conference rules. So I went with my varsity all during the season. Before the NCAA, we were getting better. Uh, I took four freshmen. They were led, uh, those four freshmen that went to the NCAAs, and it was an individual tournament, were led by Paul Gherkin, who transferred the next year to Trinity, unfortunately, and Mac Claflin and three other guys. And, and they were good enough to finish eighth as, all, as an all-freshman team. And from then on, 
We're getting a little better each year. Roscoe Tanner decided to come at the last minute. He'd applied to Stanford, been admitted, uh, but had signed a conference letter of intent to Tennessee. But when he came, it turned everything around. So as we move into the 70s, Coach, the standard has now been set. You've shown a record of success, and now you're really starting to bring in some teams that are just absolutely loaded. You have a guy by the name of Matt Mitchell that comes in and, and wins the NCAAs for you, and you're so strong the following year with John McEnroe coming on board, guys like Peter Rennert coming on. Matt Mitchell goes from winning the NCAAs to playing kind of three or four for you the following year. I mean, that's unheard of. Well, it was, it was it was an amazing team. In those days, uh, I, I did get scholarship help uh, the first time tennis had any full scholarships. So by my uh, second year, I was getting some scholarship help, and we actually got it up to eight scholarships, eight full scholarships, and that. So we were we were really good, and and that was uh, what our department cut us off at. And uh, but that was certainly good enough to be competitive and, and remain such, even if you lost a guy to the pros. Uh, and so we were really good at the, in those years, and and. Uh, Matt Mitchell did just a great job for us. His older brother before him was an All-American as well. Right. And uh, and then all of a sudden John McEnroe comes in, and and that team, uh, my my biggest chore, first of all, I gave Mac the fall off because he played a lot of tournaments in the old Bill Reardon circuit uh, in the East Coast during his senior year in high school uh-huh. in the spring, had done well enough to qualify for the main draw at Wimbledon but he went to Wimbledon representing the United States juniors, uh, which was the second week of Wimbledon. Uh, in the main draw, he just kept on winning. Uh, and uh, all of a sudden, he's in the semifinals in the second week. He couldn't play the juniors after all. And then after that, he just kept on playing. He didn't. I don't think he took a week off all summer. He had great results throughout the year. I don't think he won another, another pro tournament, but he was always in the quarters or uh, 16s of, of all of the ones, including the U.S. Open, I believe. And I didn't know if he was going to actually enroll at Stanford. Was he still going to come or not? Well, rumor has it you guys had a little something happen that uh, he uh, he comes to the airport and says, "Coach, I'm at the airport. Come pick me up." <laughs> and you say to him, uh, "You say, John, I gave your scholarship away. I thought you were turning pro." Yeah, Mac. Is that you? <laughs> he says, "Yeah, I'm at the airport. Pick me up." And something like that. The conversation was, "Yeah, John, I, I thought you'd turn pro. I, I gave your scholarship away, and that caused a little bit of silence. And we got a good laugh out of it." Uh, but Mac came in and he played so much that I gave him the fall off. And it was probably the best coaching that I made. Uh, Mac was not a great practice player as far as repetitions go. Uh, he had a very distinct style of play. And the fall in those days, we used most of our practice and work on our games. And uh, that was not Mac. He, like, he got better by playing a lot. And, and a lot of people do that just by playing a lot. And he had his own distinctive style. But uh, when we got to February, our first competition was the National Team Indoor Championship in Madison, Wisconsin. I had to make a decision on lineups. So I didn't know what to do. I had three guys I felt were my best players. Uh, Billy Mays uh, was one of Northern California's top juniors a year ahead of Matt, I believe. Uh, he was always North Cal, number one in his age group, as was Matt the year behind. And they had a, a rivalry going, not a bad rivalry, but really obviously pretty intense. And then Mac. And then we had another guy on the team named Perry Wright, right? Uh, who was a really good player. He and Matt were a great doubles team, and as were Billy and John. Well, I said, okay, guys, I really think we ought to do is have you guys all play each other, uh, the Matt and Billy and John McEnroe, and then whoever comes in last or whoever's up number three, Perry, I have to give you a chance. Uh, Perry, you're going to get a chance at him. Well, usually when that happens, Murphy's Law, we have three guys playing around Robin. It's going to be one and one, one and one, one and one. Well, fortunately, there was a clear winner. Mac won 
both his matches, both of them in three sets over Billy and in Matt. And then Billy beat Matt in another three-set match. So that put Matt at four. He had to play his best wow. friend, then Perry Wright, for the fourth, third position and didn't give his best effort. He was kind of down on himself by then and probably down on me as well. And he had started the year playing number four. Then at number five, we had a really good player in college tennis, John Rast. Right. And then mm-hmm. fighting for number six, we had uh, three freshmen. Jim Hodges was a great junior. Uh, Lloyd Bourne, top 100 in the world to be. Peter Renard, I think, got as high as number 20, uh, 38 in the world. Uh, we're all fighting for the number six spot. So so we had a heck of a team in those days. And uh, it worked okay. I, I thought my biggest fear was the team was going to self-destruct because we had such strong personalities. And uh, uh, But they made it through together. They're, they're, they were close friends, but really competitive. And, and they made it through together. And the end of the year, I think, let's see, I forget what the rankings were, but Perry Wright, my number four guy, finished uh, number 12 in the country, and the other three guys were all ahead of him in the na- national ITA rankings. So, Coach, let me ask you this question. Obviously, it's ridiculous to think that, you know, you're having to make these lineup decisions and you've got a guy that's just gotten to the semis of Wimbledon in the main draw and you're not sure who's going to be your number one player. And then you've also got the guy that won the NCAAs the year before and he ends up landing at the four spot. I'm sure there are lots of coaches around the country that wish they had such problems. But when we look at the way college tennis was viewed in those days as a gateway to pro tennis, it seems like that has been conceptually something that has ebbed and flowed um, from a philosophical standpoint of, well, if you're going to play pro tennis, there's no reason to waste your time with college tennis. You've heard that at different points in time. And at other points in time, clearly you've heard, well, it's a great place to go mature and develop socially and all of the things that make you, you know, sort of more of an adult. Cause you know, once you go out on that tour, there's a lot of things that happen both on and off the court that require tremendous maturity to deal with the ups and downs of pro tennis. What have been your thoughts on that as as we've watched time go on and, and see that philosophy change over time? Well, times do change. When I was in college uh, and through the days of Stan Smith and Charlie Pastorell and Arthur Ashe, uh, you stayed in college. That was an exemption from the military draft as long as you're in college. So there was a little bit of incentive there, and, and there really wasn't any pro tennis as we know it now. Uh, pro tennis started in the open year of open tennis in 1968. Right. It took a while for prize money to build up for TV coverage to come in, uh, and it, on a grand scale. So it really wasn't quite the same world. Uh, it started to be pretty big. Roscoe, uh, was my first guy to leave by turning pro. Uh, he'd work hard. His goal when he came in was to build the program up to win a national championship. Uh, we finished a very close, a close second at Trinity University and his junior year. And I'll never forget when he called me in to his dad called me in to meet with him for dinner at a little restaurant in Athens, Georgia called Ireland's when the tournament was over. Uh, Roscoe had lost in five sets to Dickie Stockton in the semifinals. He and Sandy Mayer had won the doubles. And uh, they said they'd been talking to agents. Agents were a big thing in those days, trying to sign the next great American hope. And uh, they'd been camping out with Roscoe. And, and he said, we just can't afford to come back. We're going to have to turn pro. And I was crestfallen because I thought, hey, we finally are poised now to come back next year and win the thing. And Roscoe, you're the guy that started it all. This is why you came here to do this. You want to be a part of this. He was the only guy I ever tried to talk out of turning pro. Wow. And uh, I figured, well, six more months, you know, your your points you won during the year, Garen, during the year lasted a whole whole 12 months, so you're not going to lose any ground there. Sure. Come back, get straight into Wimbledon and so on. But then as time evolved and got to be more money out there, uh, you know, you want guys who are, 
who want to be in college. I think uh, it was still a gateway to the pros, and guys were still coming to college. I know we would have guys turn pro, but not after, uh, not until after a couple of years of college. I had a couple of guys ranked in the top 100, two or three. Danny Goldie, I believe, just Durango. Maybe mm-hmm. I can't remember. But I have Peter Renner. Uh, Peter Renner was in the quarters of Australian Open and sure. top 100 in the world. They were in the top 100 in the world and, st- and still came back to finish one more year of school because their ranking points lasted for a year. You could go out in those days. There wasn't a best of 18 where you could throw away or 16, whatever it is now, where you could throw away your best results. You couldn't do that. So it was easier for a young guy to break into the rankings. And you could do that over a course of a four-month summer and a couple of tournaments during the school year. So it was not unusual for a guy to reach top 100 in the world and stay in school for six more months, seven more months, and graduate. We're on the quarter system as well. So a guy could get ahead in school, as Roscoe did, and Sandy Mayer did, and they did come back to school their senior year on time, but they took the winter quarter off to play as a pro, uh, the, and therefore lost their amateur status. Uh, they played all summer as a pro as well, but but you could do that, so it was a little easier than with a quarter system to do that. But uh, I think I think the big thing is that you know you have to be realistic about it. And the great thing about our sport is you can be play as an amateur in pro events. And by doing that, you can get a pro ranking, so you know right where you are. And it's not hard. You know, now I think about 125 guys are probably breaking even on the tour. It used to be you couldn't break even until you're in the top 50. Wow. So it's a little easier to go out there and meet your expenses now, but it's a lonely world going out there, starting out chasing the points and the tournaments all over the world where you have the best chance to get into the tournament and score a few points. It's not easy because what you used to be able to do in four months or so to get in the top 100 because that best of 18 rule, or again, whatever it is, uh, the top guys, it protects the top guys. They get a few bad losses. It doesn't hurt them in a few tournaments. Uh, so now it takes you a year and a half or two years to join your buddy who didn't go to college and went out there and now is 198, and he's 98 in the world, or 150 in the world. It takes you, if you're equal ability, about a year and a half or two years to get to that point yourself. Got it. My guest today on KickServeRadio.com, Tennis on Air with Andy Zoden, legendary Hall of Fame, former Stanford men's tennis coach Dick Gould. And, Coach, at this time, I want to take the opportunity to thank my dear friend and your former number one player, Jeff Salzenstein, for connecting us for the opportunity to talk to you like this today. And and his generation of players was a huge, I don't want to say resurgence because it's not like you guys ever dropped off, but he and Paul Goldstein and the Bryans sort of represented that era of tennis where you started to have more undefeated teams i think you had three lifetimes starting with that that mcenroe team and then as you move forward jeff salzenstein paul goldstein bob and mike bryan ryan walters and that group of guys uh in the 90s also were able to come out and uh, and set a standard that was incredibly high well it's not easy to go undefeated i know uh mcenroe's team uh matt mentioned that team that we were talking about uh mcenroe's lost uh, he's playing Elliot telcher he's playing brian t guys i mean those 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 teams were good on the other schools as well. That team was lucky going defeated. We were playing at UCLA, scoring us 5-4. Uh, you played nine points. Doubles were played last. You had three, one point for each doubles match, two out of three sets. And we are playing at UCLA, and UCLA is up 3-2 in the singles before we go in the doubles on John McEnroe's down match point against Elliot Telcher. Oh. And a long rally, Elliot serve. He comes to the net at 5-3 uh, in a third set, no ad scoring. Uh, Deuce comes to net, works away to net, and Mac runs across court. It's a backhand passing shot that's out of this earth under pressure, the best shot under pressure I've ever seen, wow. to break serve, hold serve the next game, and then Elliot just kind of 
melted away, and we saved them to be the season by winning two or three doubles. Uh, we never could have won three doubles against that UCLA team. It was, it was too good. So uh, then we move on a while, and, and we were undefeated then. And then finally, Jeff Salzstein's year, we had an undefeated season. And, and it was capped just after Jeff left with a team of uh, uh, my four best players were Paul Goldstein, uh, Ryan Walters, a local fellow, really a good player, won, had won the All-American tournament uh, a year earlier or even that year, I can't recall, and the Bryan brothers. And then at number five and six, I had Alex Kim and Jeff Abrams. Jeff was a national championship champion in the 14-unders. I think he ranked one in the country, 12s or 14s. Continued to be a great college player. And, of course, Alex Kim won the plays a couple of years later and was in the top 100 in the world. So uh, that was an outstanding team. And, and it's really who you're playing. The, again, the men's programs got cut back from eight scholarships to four and a half. Uh, the equivalent of four and a half by NCAA rule, and that really affected the depth in college tennis. So there weren't that many great teams. I mean, really great teams. Uh, in, in fairness, though, that team of uh, of Goldstein and Walters, the Bryans and Abrams and Kim, uh, they went undefeated that year. Not only did they go undefeated, I think they lost three singles points all year long. Wow. And two of those were reversed when we met the same when they met the same player again later in the year. In addition, we lost one doubles point. That was uh, an amazing performance, but keep in mind we were playing teams with four and a half scholarships rather than eight. So uh, I'm not saying it was easier to do. What they did was incredible. Uh, uh, but when you look at look at teams, it's hard to compare in any sport because eras are different, as you know. Paul Goldstein, I'm told, I had lunch with Mike Bryan uh, several years back, and he claimed that Paul Goldstein was one of the best locker room guys, for lack of a better description, that you could ever kind of go into the trenches with. Did you see at the time that Paul was playing for you that he might eventually become the Stanford men's coach and, and follow in your shoes down the road a ways? Well, you know, I had two guys that John Whitlinger did it. Right. He won the sing he won these plays in singles and doubles and team. Uh first time anyone had done it. Uh and then Alex O'Brien followed after that. I think uh uh USC's uh uh Johnson did a little Stevie Johnson did it, but it's not not it's not often. Bob Bryan did it. He won the singles, won the doubles with his brother, but in the singles beat Paul in the finals. Wow. And uh, uh, when he won the team. But that's a pretty rare, the triple crown for any individual is pretty rare. And uh, I, I think Paul, you know, everyone on that team really was a leader. We sat down. I didn't know how I was going to work my lineup in 44 years of coaching, counting 38 at Stanford and two of high school and four at JC. I did it differently every year. And this took a year, I sat the guys down on the court, just on, on the court itself. I said, how are we going to work this out? And we got guys like, I have a ton of comps to you guys. I think Jeff and Alex are a little behind. The, you four guys right now, we're all there. And I said, how are we going to work this? And they said, Coach, we don't want to play matches against each other. Do what you think's best. So John Whitlinger, and I, Whitlinger Coach John Whitlinger and I talked, and, and we went and came back the next day with a plan. I set them down again. I said, guys, we have 24 matches. Uh, what if each one of you played number one four times or played uh, an equal number of times at one, two, three, and four? And they said, oh, that's good. We can do that. And I said, well, wait a minute, guys. I'm going to tell you right now what match you're going to play, one, four, two, four, three, four, 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 and that's going to be two months from now. It goes out two months. Wow. Can you handle that? Because at that point in time, Someone's going to be playing better, maybe at four, uh, and it should be playing one. But if you commit to it, we're going to do it all year. Wow. And the guy said, that sounds great. 
And by God, we did it. We, they stayed true to it. There is no animosity. And Paul was a great guy in leading that. Uh, when we sat on that first court the first day, they said, well, uh, Bob Ryan will say, I think Ryan Walters be one. He won the All-American tournament. Then Ryan would say, well, what about Mike Bryan? He's playing better than anyone right now. Mike would say, what about Paul Goldstein? What a great career he's had here. And then Paul would say, what about Bob Ryan? He just won Kalamazoo. I mean, and Paul, they say, Paul, you won it three times. I mean, you know, everyone was pushing the other guy. It was amazing. So that's what we did. And number five, I alternated Jeff and uh, Alex all year. And not depending on who we're going to play, I alternated. I, on that day, I gave them who was going to play, what number, when, all the way two, two and a half months out every match. So they knew at that point. And uh, we stuck with it. They stayed with it, largely because of Paul's leadership. And, and Paul following John Stanford had two great coaches, and, and Paul's continuing the uh, the curve. And, and it's a different, a little bit different world right now for a lot of the coaches because the kids are doing so much online schooling. Sometimes they don't get the advice from a high school counselor they would have if they're in a, in a, actually in a school to encourage them to take things like AP courses that they are important. In fact, even the USGA development program for a while uh, and Boca was saying, yeah, we have a good online program called Good College Prep Program, but Stanford wants to see, and I think the Ivies do too, uh, some AP courses in there. And there's no counselor to advise you. You don't take them. And that really, that's really affected Paul's recruiting, very honestly, wow. and John's as well. Well, Coach, I, I could talk to you all day about, about Stanford tennis and college tennis, and I know you've already given me as much time as you've got. I know you're on a tight schedule today, but I just want to tell you that as a guy that was at the University of Texas late 70s, early 80s, we always, and I felt like I was on a on a pretty good team with a, with a great coach and a bunch of great guys. You were on great teams. Dave Snyder, had a, what a great guy and yep. a tremendous coach. And he had, I know you guys loved him, and I, I really we was. still do. I, I really uh, had a lot of respect for how much love you guys had for him. And, and I, he was totally invested in you guys. And, and you guys had great teams down there. Gosh, my gosh. They were playing in the drum with uh, Mac and Kevin Kern yes, and sir. Harry Block. And, wow, what times. Yeah, well, I can tell you that we always admired what you were doing and always held Stanford in the in the highest regard. And, and what you've done will never be matched. You're kind of the John Wooden of of men's college tennis in this country. Well, you never, you never say never, Andy. I mean, it's a changing world. Things change. And uh, I, I'm really happy for my guys, what they achieved. I'm very proud of them. And they've continued to do well. And so many of them are still in tennis and representing our sport well. And I think that's the thing we all have to remember as coaches and as players. You know, we're not playing just for ourselves. We're playing for our team. Uh, that message, I think, came across loud and clear in our teams. But we also are playing for our sport. And I think how well we represent not only our team and our school and our family, but how well we represent the sport is really, really important. And I think that I'm really proud of my guys. Uh, I, I think they really had a felt a good responsibility to the sport. So many of them are still in tennis, giving back in the game in one way or another. Gosh, look, Nick Salviano, all he did is head of player education for the USTA. Then you look at uh, all, all – um, Patrick McEnroe did and the things he instituted while he was head of player development and, and Martin Blackman to follow. I mean, what those guys are giving to tennis and the broadcasts out there, David Wheaton, uh, uh, Jeff Tarango, uh, the, all of them, and, and what they've given back in so many other ways. And you can't find two better representatives in tennis on the tour still, well, three, than Roger Federer and the Bryan brothers. I mean, uh, our sport's blessed to have them. We have a responsibility to try to emulate them as much as we can. 
No question about it. And, Coach, you are one of the great ambassadors in the history of our sport. Thank you so much for taking the time today. I want to thank Jeff Salzenstein again for the hookup. Well, I want to thank Jeff, too. I mean, what what a what a great uh, – he comes in as a scrawny little guy. I hadn't really <laughs> developed yet, and, and, and but I knew he was at our Junior Davis Cup training camp, but I could just see him. I mean, he is so well taught by his dad and parents. The guy really had a great game. Uh, Miles Cortez and his and his dad, real dad, both of them, uh, just did a great job with Jeff and and his family. I mean, he had had his head on straight. He knew what he was doing. He kept things in perspective. Uh, what a joy to work with him and watch him develop as he gained his maturity and and gained his strength and and size. And uh, I, I did feel he was a sleeping giant. He turned out to be just that. And I'm so proud of the work he's doing in tennis now, how much he's giving back to the game. He's becoming quite an educator in his own right, and I know he gives you a lot of that credit. Coach, thank you so much. I appreciate the time. I know you got to get on to your next meeting, but, but uh, what a treat for me. And uh, all of us in the sport of tennis owe you a huge debt of gratitude for all you've done. So thank you so much. Well, it works both ways, Andy. Keep up the great work and talk to you soon. Will do, sir. Thank you so much. 